I have to keep in my mind, I'm going to um, put under the paywall things that are company specific and that I think provide actionable information for investors. If it's more educational, if it's more observational, then that's free. Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with independent writers, bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background. Hey, Francine, thanks for coming on the Substack Podcast. Thanks for asking. So you write The Dig, uh, which you describe as digging into accounting, audit, and corporate governance issues at public and pre-IPO companies. Uh, Yes, it's uh, very similar to what I've been doing for the last 15 years in terms of uh, writing and journalism, Um, but I put a new brand uh, spin on it for my Substack uh, launch. Awesome. Um, I'd love to dig into, (laughs) I'm going to be saying that a lot probably, Um, (laughs) digging into your background a bit since um, you had an entire career, it seems, uh, several decades working in public accounting um, at KPMG and PwC and um, all these big firms. And then you later went on to become an investigative journalist. So you've had like multiple um, careers, it seems like. How did you, how and why did you make that transition from working directly in accounting to becoming a journalist? Sure. Um, I like to say that um, journalism is my second profession because accounting, being a CPA, is my first profession, or at least my original one. And uh, you never, uh, if you're an accountant, you're always an accountant. Um, So now I'm using that subject matter expertise uh, and writing about it instead of doing it. But I had been um, working uh, in um, uh, industry, in banks, and then in KPMG, KPMG Consulting. It's been off bearing point. I worked in Latin America for a while. Um, and then uh, for PwC was my last job with a firm. Um, and I left PwC at the end of 2006, uh, thinking I was going to write a book about um, the accounting firms in the global financial system. And of course, that went over like a lead balloon with agents and publishers. Um, they wanted more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I, I thought, well, I should uh, start a blog um, in order to start getting some of that material on paper, sort of seeing what people uh, were going to respond to. And I started a blog first um, on Blogger which is the pre-Google blogger version, um, anonymously. So I, you know, I, was, I was doing it sort of still thinking I was going to go back and work um, at a firm or at a company in, you know, in the kinds of roles that I had been working before. Um, and a little worried, like all accountants are, uh, about you know, your reputation and getting on you know, the, the blacklist of you know, people who are uh, not uh, on the right side of the firms. Um, and so started it anonymously at the end of 2006, beginning of 2007. And people started emailing me like, who are you, um, including from outside the U.S., um, because I was talking about the, um, the firms from a very uh, critical perspective, the, the big four public accounting firms and their consulting arms. So PwC, Deloitte, Ernst & Young and KPMG. Um, and very few people have the freedom to talk about um, sort of the inside, the business end of those firms, because you're usually, either usually working for them or you're working for a company and you're dependent on them or 
you're somehow in the ecosystem of lawyers and consultants who are also dependent on their uh, good favor. And so very few people actually know what goes on inside the firms and are free to talk about it. So people were really curious. And then I realized, why am I writing anonymously? How am I going to get a book deal from writing a blog? If I, people don't know who I am, I'm going to have to stand by my um, my opinions. And so I put my name on the blog, and it's called Ray the Auditors, R-E, the Auditors, like N. Ray, like the litigation, or in reference to the auditors. And I started writing, and lo and behold, that was the beginning of 2007, 2008, and we started having the issues with the subprime uh, and then the financial crisis. And the expertise that I had uh, became very much in demand. Very few people could explain all the complex accounting um, and the role of the auditors in all of the different banks and companies that were under stress. So at a certain point, I was at the point of no return because I had been so critical and had been talking so frankly about what was going on that nobody was ever going to hire me back <laughs> in the firms or anywhere else. So I had to just go forward and try to become a journalist. And I approached that from the same sort of professional perspective that I did uh, my previous career and tried to learn from the best people and work for the best editors and eventually ended up in a full-time role at MarketWatch in 2015 here in Washington, D.C. Wow. It's funny hearing you talk about, I didn't realize, I guess, that your blog was um, anonymous at first. And it, it seems like there's this pattern of behavior. We have a couple of other uh, Substack writers as well who write anonymously and people who write in saying, you know, can I start my newsletter anonymously? Um, and I, I've seen it with sort of these like industry insider kind of publications and, and writing. Um, do you have, have you seen this happening with like other, I guess, like anonymous Twitter accounts or blogs. It's just sort of like, I guess, interesting to think about maybe in the past you had like a whistleblower source that sure. would go to media, whereas now people are just kind of doing it themselves and staying anonymous. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I was a, a very early Twitter adopter. I, I've been on Twitter since April of 2008, again, because as an independent journalist, I needed a way to promote my work, to let people know I was writing and what I was writing about. And some of my old technology consulting um, friends who were on Friendster um, said, oh, this Twitter's a cool place to go. You know, you need to go there and you can connect to people. And no one was there. I mean, no journalists, no, um, you know, accountants and auditors for sure, no lawyers, you know, all of the people that were afraid of social media stayed away for a while. Um, but for me, it was a really good place to promote my work. And I would run into people all the time, you know, like the accountants and the lawyers and the, you know, the auditors and other, you know, and then eventually the traders who started taking advantage. Um, there was an early site that's still around StockTwits, which allows for, you know, was using Twitter tags um, in order to sort of pull in information that people were posting on Twitter about individual stocks. Um, that's much more sophisticated now, but the idea was people wanted to be anonymous because they had regular jobs and they were either worried about, you know, saying something negative and, and getting fired or, you know, saying something that was confidential and getting fired or, you know, uh, you know, ticking off somebody that, you know, was going to hire them later and, you know, not having, you know, a career. So, I mean, the risk averse professions or, or anybody who wants to hold a job, you know, that where they're employed by somebody else 
is going to be worried about, you know, uh, if something I say or something I do is going to be, is going to break the rules or is going to somehow, um, you know, alienate me from my employers. And, you know, in my case, I, I was an independent journalist, so I didn't have anybody that I had to alienate. And I had made a decision that I was never going back to the firms. So it was sort of, hey, you know, gonzo, 150%, you know, take it or leave it. I had to take the consequences of my, of my actions. But a lot of people can't do that. Um, people have obligations and responsibilities. They need to keep their day job. And it's sort of a difficult balance. Um, we run into that now as journalists. I run into that now with people who have great information. Uh, they want to be whistleblowers, but they need to be anonymous. They want to be sources. They want people to know about their expertise, but they don't want to have it come across as critical. So I write critically and maybe they don't even want to be quoted in my um, you know, newsletter or in the past, even in my news stories, because I have a reputation of being critical of the people that, you know, they are beholden to. So it's a dilemma. You can't have it both ways. You either, you know, are willing to stand by your opinions and take the consequences or, you know, you're not going to get fame and fortune. <laughs> <laughs> How did you solve the cold start problem of you write, you're writing this anonymous blog, but, and you want it to be read by people who you might interact with normally, but you don't want to tell them that it's you. So how did you initially like get your readership out there? Well, you know, as an accountant, I'm really into metrics and I looked for the tools that could help me see um, who was reading, how they were reading, what they were looking for. And so in the early days, um, you had um, tools, uh, even before Google Analytics, I've been subscribing to a tool out of the UK called NetCounter for now, gosh, uh, it's, it's going to be 14 years. They've got a lot of my money. And the idea was that I could look, you know, even if it was five people clicking on it, I could see where they were coming from. I could see, um, you know, what keywords they used to search. That's not as easy anymore. Um, and of course, there's much more sophisticated analytical tools that have developed over time. Every major media organization now uses all kinds of, um, you know, analytical tools to look at their traffic, especially from social media, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. But I was an early adopter of analyzing that data. And if somebody came to my blog from another blog or from media, I called them. I reached out. I emailed them. I said, Hey, I saw, I heard you, you know, I, you, you went to my blog. Uh, how can I help you? You know, what do you want to know? Um, why are you interested? And some people were put off by that, but I met so many amazing people, people that I still work with and talk to today. And as a investigative journalist, and you were writing this blog in from the beginning, and then um, also writing columns elsewhere and working at other media firms. How did you decide what went on your blog versus what, what you wanted to write in a column? Like, how did you mentally separate personal writing and prof I guess professional writing is? I didn't initially, um, you know, at not being from a journalist um, background, um, I didn't initially pitch anybody. Um, I just wrote. Um, the blog was my outlet. It was my place to put everything down. And I write long and I write detailed and I was very linky. And I would just, it was my diary of everything that was going on in my way to explain. 
And it developed a following because, um, in particular, people that were working in the public accounting firms at that time during the crisis, in the midst of the crisis, they were they were craving information about what was going on, in particular about you know what was going to happen um, if you know all of these banks went out of business. Those were their clients, and so when layoffs and other sort of more HR personnel issues came up, I mean they just flocked to the blog because I would say, hey, you know this is going to happen, or hey, I heard you're we're going to they're going to have layoffs, or hey, you know the partners are going to get their pay cut. A lot of what's going on now in in many industries, you know, people crave that information because they want to know, uh, you know, am I going to have a job or how do I maneuver, you know, uh, through this through this difficult situation. Um, so I was writing on the blog. People started asking me media organization, and I was promoting that work um, on Twitter mostly. And uh, people started asking me to be quoted. In articles. So the very first major media quote I had was from the FT, from Stacey Marie Ishmael, who's now the executive editor at the Texas Tribune and has been at uh, the FT and BuzzFeed and lots of other places. She asked me to comment on this live um, um, conference call at the SEC. And she quoted me and said, you know, blogger, which was extraordinary at that time, like a blogger was not a legitimate um, quote source for major media. They would not, they were always asking me, well, don't you have a consulting firm or don't you, you know, I mean, don't you work for a firm or a university? And I mean, they wanted some other kind of legitimate um, play, thing to identify me by. And FT was kind of bold in that regard. FT Alphaville was bold in that regard. They were very big on the bloggers at that time. And there was a whole, uh, um, group of a cabal of financial bloggers, fin you know, the Finchwits early, early, early in the financial crisis, people who now are in some major media organizations like John Carney, who's at Breitbart and who was at the Wall Street Journal and CNBC, Joe Wiesenthal at Bloomberg, um, Felix Salmon, who's been everywhere. I mean, these were people who were blogging in the beginning of the financial crisis. And so first they started quoting me. And then some outlets actually asked me to start writing. So then one thing I did have to do uh, after only a couple of years, barely two years, is I could not do any other kind of consulting. I was doing some consulting, um, uh, internal audit kind of consulting. And it, the dilemma was, how can you write about stuff you're working at? And how can you work at stuff that you want to write about? So my normal conflict of interest, uh, you know, uh, uh, hat, you know, came on and I had to make a rule. I'm not going to work uh, if I want to write about it. And I'm not going to write about it if I'm working on it. Well, I started wanting to write about things more than I wanted to work with them. And so I stopped doing consulting and lived on um, freelance and, you know, the kindness of strangers <laughs> for a long time. Um, so it was a very gradual thing, people asking me to write about it instead of being quoted. And that was a transition in and of itself, because if you've been quoted in a major media outlet, um, they won't let you come back and write about it from a um, plain news perspective. You have to be an opinion person, opinion writer. Well, I didn't have the stature to, to be doing op-eds. 
So I had to be careful too, if I wanted to write about something, um, not to be quoted in by that journalist um, and start gravi gravitating towards um, writing about things. And people came to me, I never pitched. People came to me, um, American Banker eventually came to me and asked me to do a column. Forbes came to me, asked me to do a column. I never pitched. Um, it wasn't until later, um, after the crisis, when things started, sort of calmed down, that I had to start pitching. And by that time, there were a lot of people who were very aware of where my expertise was and what kinds of things I would be interested in writing about. So, um, I, you know, I wasn't like blindly pitching anybody and trying to convince them to let me write about the stuff that I uh, could write about the best. I'd love to touch on this point you mentioned about either writing or working on a thing and kind of having the separation out between the two, uh, which I think is really interesting. I found, at least for myself and in talking to other writers, that sometimes like you also need that mental separation just to be able to fully focus and kind of wrap your brain around like one kind of problem versus the other. And then of course, in your case, there's maybe like ethical um, or just conflicts of interest as well. Um, do you find it hard to, as you kind of go deeper into the writing part and you have more time now between when you were working versus when you're writing, um, the, the cycles are, are pretty long. Um, do you find it harder to stay in touch with what's happening on the ground? That is a big challenge, in particular when you're writing about technical issues. Um, and if I'm writing about the business of the firms and how they're um, working with their clients, um, which is sort of the, the, the meat of, of a lot of what I write about, I have to stay in touch. So what I started um, pretty early on, probably for the last seven, eight years, is I started um, having uh, universities, professors ask me if I would come out and talk to their students. So I, I have a pretty heavy um, schedule and I do any um, uh, talks or speeches to students, that's just uh, free, that's a public service, that's me giving back to the profession. I go out and talk to students, about what's going on in our profession. I bring stories from the headlines uh, about accounting, audit, capital markets, uh, corporate governance, et cetera. And I give them real live examples because they don't really hear about these things in school. Certainly the recruiters from the firms don't tell them about any of the negative stuff. And so by going out to the schools and developing that, um, that connection, I have um, lots and lots and lots of people who want to help me get it right. Um, in addition, you have all the academics. And then, of course, you know, you have um, lit uh, litigation. So you have all the lawyers. So, you know, my sources are very broad in terms of people who want to help me get it right. And I'm, I'm smart enough to know not to um, write um, without uh, that support if you're writing about something that you don't know about, something new. Uh, or technical, and to double check and make sure that my information about something is current. So I have I have students who were, um, you know, just uh, seniors in college or just about to embark on their career when they first started reading me, and now they're partners at the firms or they're professors in the universities. So uh, I've been at it long enough that I've seen people grow and they've seen me grow and a very loyal loyal following. 
It's interesting you bring up academia, um, and I saw that you're an adjunct professor at, of business at American University. So you've, and you, it sounds like you've just had a, a lot of exposure to the academic model. Um, something I've thought about is just like how, where the line is drawn between um, academic research and journalism, since in a lot of ways, especially with invest, investigative journalism, since in both cases, you're digging deeply into this topic and you're writing about your insights and sort of publishing out, it out to an audience, right? Um, did you ever think about maybe doubling down on academia instead of journalism? Um, and if so, why did you decide to focus on the latter? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've been a teacher all my life from a kid. Um, I, you know, my mom thought I was going to be a teacher. Um, I'm the oldest of six. We used to play school. You know, we had enough enough in our family to play school in our basement. So teaching is sort of natural to me, even when I was working in the firms and consulting um, as a managing director, as a practice leader, you know, my role is to develop um, other professionals and to guide and to teach and to, and then to teach clients how to use new software, or how to do something correctly. So it, it's a natural for me. And I always wanted to um, find a way to also someday teach, um, you know, uh, in a university. When I first started the blog, though, the academics were not too crazy about me. Um, I got, you know, some of them were kind of snippy. Um, I, I'm talking about like in the, you know, early crisis periods, 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, they did not like someone writing about these issues and not writing about it from an academic research perspective. From a you know a, a very quantitative statistical approach, data you know heavy data, you know my writing was um, they considered to be anecdotal, um, and my opinion was that my anecdotal experience was pretty broad and deep, and my sources were impeccable. I wrote like I um, audited, you know I gathered evidence and I supported my opinions with um, enough. Uh, facts and and documents and evidence that I thought you know made my case, and so they were not really crazy about me. I used to get a lot of criticism. You know, she's just this sort of carpetbagger, you know, uh, academic. So I was encroaching on some people's territory. However, eventually, you know, uh, what it usually takes to win people over is you need those people who suddenly decide that they're going to be supportive instead of critical. And there were some key academics who, who came out in support and started inviting me to speak at academic conferences. And suddenly, um, you know, there was this whole group of academics who were hungry again for this outside point of view, one that, you know, was not um, allowed in some cases to be uh, incorporated in their discussions and their discussions of, of of you know what to teach the students and their discussions of how to interact with the firms from a recruiting perspective. You know they were just really sort of squelched, uh, and some of them who had the power and the position to um, entertain an alternative perspective um, or a critical perspective uh, started inviting me, and that sort of won some of the academics over. So. Academic research was always something that I wanted to use to bolster uh, my writing. Um, I wasn't getting, you know, their cooperation. They were dismissing my work. They did not want to cooperate. And then the tide turned sort of at the end of the crisis period, 2009, 2010. And suddenly I started having academics coming to me 
and wanting me to write about their papers. And some of them wanting me to look at their papers, um, eventually to how can I participate or contribute um, to their papers. And so I've um, got a lot, a lot, a lot of credits in uh, or citations of my work and some thank yous and some papers at this point. Um, because I had ideas that many of the academics who had never worked in the profession would never have thought of. And they were pursuing something that maybe I could contribute some kind of additional information or a additional source that was outside of the outside of academia. So it's been a really fruitful um, relationship. And I'm one of the few business journalists who pretty consistently writes about academic research and will get it, you know, early in the game um, and write a whole article about it, not just cite it. So you can look like on my market watch, um, um, uh, on market watch where, you know, there's a lot, a lot of um, articles that are just about an, an academic paper and applying it to what uh, is going on in, in life. But I've also encouraged a lot of academics um, in accounting, um, in um, uh, economics, um, at the schools that I've been associated with, to write more um, that has a more immediate policy impact. So a lot of academic research, especially in accounting, is very esoteric. And it's just, you know, spinning um, angels on the head of a pin. And I was always encouraging when I would go out to the schools, I would sit also with the PhD students and with the professors and say, tell me what you're working on. And they would ask me, you know, questions and we would, you know, develop that collaboration so that if they were interested in doing something more timely and focused on policy impact, um, I was always there to help people. As you're describing this, I'm almost getting flashbacks to what's happening now with the current crisis and pandemic in that there is some tension now around, uh, I guess, like incumbents or institutions and recommendations around um, both from like a health perspective and like economic perspective and just on every level right now of people trying to figure out how do we take all this sort of established knowledge and like how does that um, reconcile with a lot of the new and confusing situations that we're all in right now. Do you feel like there's any sort of parallel happening with that in um, your world of, of writing from the 2008 crisis that you describe and, and today? Sure. There are, there are a lot of, um, you know, journalistic um, topics that lend themselves really, really well to um, leaning on research, using research, you know, highlighting research and, you know, obviously science or anything science related is one of them, one of the, one of the, most important ones. The problem is that, you know, no academic discipline is um, unchallenged by the um, influence of money. Um, and every academic discipline has the lure of uh, money um, from uh, private uh, sources uh, that encourages research in certain areas, sometimes, um, you know, uh, custom orders research in certain areas, whether it's science, economics, uh, you know, uh, data security, I mean, you name it, you know, every academic discipline is hungry for funding, and some academics are willing um, to sell um, their platform um, for uh, the, uh, um, for the opportunity to have it funded and also 
for sometimes the 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 fame or or promotion that comes with being getting funding from certain think tanks or certain professional organizations or chambers of commerce or whoever it is that or private funding situation. So just like uh, journalism, just like media, um, you have to be very discerning. And in using uh, research um, in journalism, uh, in in looking at you know what research do you talk about? How do you report on it? Uh, whether or not you should, you know, how can you vet it? Um, the most important thing is to look at, you know, who's behind it and who's funding it. And that should be transparent. Uh, sometimes it isn't, but journalists have been fooled over and over and over again by research that is coming to them, that is being pitched to them. And the schools have professional media out. Outlook, you know, outreach uh, to pitch um, research, new research to journalists. You have to have to vet and check where is it coming from? Why is it coming to me? Who's behind it? Um, you know, why now? Why this research now? And make sure that you're not getting um, spun. I'd love to move from, we talked a lot about your blog um, and now you've more recently picked up the, a new newsletter. Um, so I'd love to just sort of talk about that that transition a little bit too. How, what inspired you to want to go from writing a blog for many years to now also having a newsletter? So the blog had to go on hiatus um, while I was at um, Market Watch. So I started at Market Watch in May of 2015. Um, even when I was writing freelance for Forbes or American Banker on a regular basis, um, you don't want to undercut, you know, work that someone is paying for by repeating it or scooping it, you know, on your own blog. Certainly, that's not the best way uh, to win friends and influence people. And it's not necessarily the best way to get your work out there um, and showcase it. When you're writing about accounting and investigative uh, corporate, you know, um, uh, malfeasance, you also have to be careful that when you do the work that it's very, very well, um, you know, um, edited and checked and verified and that you don't make mistakes uh, or there's enormous, you know, consequences from that, including legal liability. So one of the reasons why I joined MarketWatch is full time is because I wanted a full time editor and I wanted um, that um protection that comes with working for a large media organization. Um, so that as I was writing more complex uh, things with uh, more consequences for corporations, things that you know were more high profile, that I would have that um, editorial and an organizational protection. And in exchange, um, I had to sort of put the blog on ice. Um, I only put um, you know, information about where I was speaking or, hey, I wrote this at MarketWatch or, you know, sort of promoting the things I was doing and where, what I was writing rather than putting any original content on the blog. And that's been, that went on for almost five years until uh, this past November when I decided to leave MarketWatch. And I had already been aware of Substack. Um, I had talked to um, uh, Bill Bishop, who's one of your, you know, your uh, probably your most successful newsletter writer, and had been in touch with Hamish and some of the founders because they were they were encouraging me. When can you start, you know, using our our platform? 
I could not do that um, while I was working at MarketWatch. Um, to me, it was not going to be worth it to do it um, since I already had a blog um, because I couldn't get paid. So while I was working at MarketWatch, I couldn't convert to a, a paid subscription format um, and get paid separately. Um, can't do that. And if I wanted to write something and not get paid, I had my own blog or I could ask permission. But in general, I didn't write anywhere but MarketWatch while I was at MarketWatch. So I knew I was aware of the platform. I watched as it developed. I watched as functionality was added. And when I decided to leave MarketWatch in uh, November, um, it was uh, an automatic um, decision that that's where I was going. And I think I published my first article um, within a couple of days of turning on uh, the lights on the newsletter. Can you talk a little bit more about these trade-offs between, in some ways, I mean, you've been writing about the same broad focus area and topic for a long time, but you've written about it on your own blog, and then you wrote about it at MarketWatch, you've had other columns elsewhere, and then you also have this newsletter. Um, just this sort of trade-off of deciding, it's like, it's it's your same brain, but it's sometimes, I guess, temporarily rented out or owned to a different institution. And do you have a preference for one over the other? It sounds like sometimes there are just um, practical benefits to being under an institution versus not, but creatively, do you have a preference? Well, I think after almost five years at MarketWatch um, and looking around at the media landscape, I had developed the confidence um, uh, that one, I had a large enough following and two, that I could um, make sure that when I put something out independently, that it had its T's crossed and its I's dotted and I would not have any issues, which I have not had any issues. I've never been sued. I've never had a cease and desist. I've never had a takedown order on my blog since 2006. Um, I was sued once for something that I wrote at Forbes, but it was actually just an extra thing that I wrote because Forbes was sued and one of their major uh, um, uh, reporters was sued by um, uh, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal from Saudi Arabia. So I got kind of dragged into that. So here I am, you know, having been independent all these years, and I've never been sued because of my own, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, lack of, of care or, 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 or um, you know, fastidiousness in making sure that everything is all locked up. Um, the only time I've ever been sued is, you know, under a huge giant, you know, media umbrella. So I'm, you know, I was pretty confident that I could make sure that I uh, protected myself and that I knew how to do things the right way. And frankly, I wanted to just write what I want to write the way I want to write it. I like writing long. I like writing detailed. I like writing for an audience that already knows um, that they want to read what I want to read. I'm not interested in converting the unconverted, but I'd be glad to teach those who are willing to learn. So um, I had a, a mailing list, um, an email mailing list still from the blog that was pretty big, uh, almost 3,000 email uh, subscribers that never left me, uh, didn't unsubscribe in all those years. And I started with that as a base. Um, and um, I will say that, uh, you know, that's substantially increased just in three months. Um, and I've had um, more success than I ever imagined in terms of people pretty quickly subscribing on a paid basis um, in enough um, uh, volume 
to make me um, willing to keep going. So I had set sort of this um, gate, you know, for myself that I would start the paid version in January. Uh, that was about a month after I started the newsletter at the end, in the beginning of November, or I'm sorry, the beginning of December. And if I wasn't up to a certain level um, within three months, then I would have to, you know, go find a job. But I had no intention when I left Market Watch of, of looking for another media job or even freelancing. Uh, and I, other than one op-ed in the FT, uh, I haven't done uh, any of that um, since. Can you talk a little bit? A little bit about how you message paid subscriptions to your readers, um, and how do you decide on your pricing? I have the I have the good fortune of having a very good friend um, in Chicago, where I'm from originally. Um, he was formerly um, um, a marketing uh, expert at Arthur Anderson before the collapse. He now runs a marketing communications firm for for professional services firms, lawyers and accountants. So he and I are like you know. We're joined at the hip and and the soul, and we know each other's worlds. And I asked him and one of his associates to help me um, sort of um, suss that out uh, in December um, to look at sort of what other uh, publications that were focused on a very um, focused, um, you know, sort of accounting, compliance, risk management, lawyers, you know, sort of what other people were charging. Um, I also looked at, um, you know, uh, asked them to help me draft some of the um, some of the boilerplate kind of um, introductions and emails and things that go out to people when they subscribe, um, only so that I could sort of take myself out of that, you know, sort of not be navel gazing all the time and get an outside fresh perspective. But in the end, it's my product. And, you know, it was a collaborative effort. Um, they made very good suggestions to me. Um, you know, this was a paid consulting assignment. I paid for someone else's expertise um, to do that survey. And I had an idea in my mind what I was going to do. Um, and they sort of confirmed it. Um, and, and I went with it. Frankly, um, I, uh, you know, on first glance, because it was so, um, I had such good results right off the bat, I thought I'm charging too little. Um, people were paying for the full year all at once. Um, and so I almost thought, you know, maybe I'm charging too, too little. I didn't put that price point in the right place to sort of convey, I'm providing something that is unique, original, and actionable information, that was the key. It was not just, you know, I'm gonna tell you something, you know, uh, that I'm thinking about as I'm looking out my window. Um, I wanted to provide company-specific actionable information um, that people could use to, um, uh, uh, in, that might influence their decisions about investments. And so, you know, I thought about it, and then I thought, you know what? I'm not going to second guess. I'm just going to go with it. And, um, and, and so I'm sticking with, uh, with my original plan for now. And it seems to be a price point that says, um, I see a value in this, but I don't want to make it unattainable for, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's not a hedge fund or, a, or, a you know, big plaintiff's law firm or, a, you know, a big PR person from, uh, you know, 
from a big public accounting firm. So I have all of those subscribers. Um, and those are people that have budgets to pay universities. Um, but we're, you know, it's, it's, it's developing. And now I have the first uh, few uh, entities who are asking me about group subscriptions. Uh, Bill Bishop knows because I asked his advice. And uh, I saw that on his newsletter. And I said, oh, uh, people want to do that because people are worried about copyright protection. So my newsletter, you know, somebody subscribes at a university or somebody subscribes at a hedge fund or at a law firm, and then they want to circulate it to others. Well, these are all smart people that are worried about um, me getting pissed off and suing them for copyright protection. So they're calling me and asking me how to make sure that I don't, you know, come back and, and give them a hard time about this if I find out about it. So thank goodness. And so we're, you know, so I crossed that bridge and that's what happens. You know, you don't know until you do it and then you go from there. That's funny. Like a, that's, Definitely something that's specific to your audience, but sounds like you sort of turned that into an opportunity to be able to offer group subscriptions, which is cool. Right. So again, you have to you have to get. I'm not a lawyer, so um, I had to look around and see what do other similar publications do in order to make sure that people understand that they can't just like you know re-email your newsletter that you know one person paid for out to the other 50 people in their firm. And I found some examples and. Um, I have a lawyer in the family, um, and so uh, uh, he helped me refine that. Um, but again, it didn't take much because, you know, I'm I'm a consultant. Okay, I've I've written contracts for ten million dollar systems implementation projects. So, you know, I have some I have some interest and in, but also some aptitude for this stuff. For people listening who might not be familiar with your world, uh, did you find any sort of I guess, surprise from people who had been following your blog for a while who are, are they used to paying for this sort of information? Um, did you find that you had to message it differently to them? And how did you decide which posts to make free versus paid only since you do write both? So um, the decision, right, I, I put out everything that I put out in December um, at, uh, for free, obviously, uh, to get people um, to understand this is what I'm doing, right? To introduce to everybody who may or may not have been following my work recently, this is what I'm doing now. Um, and I put out some pretty quality stuff, I think, right off the bat. So the first story that I put out was one that unfortunately was spiked at MarketWatch about Under Armour and why I thought Under Armour is under criminal investigation for their accounting um, um, right now. So highly successful. I mean, like 10 times more than my mailing list. Okay. In terms of views that went out to everybody. And then uh, it got circulated 10 times over. Um, so I put out good, you know, good stuff. And then when I started the paid version in January, um, I have to keep in my mind, I'm going to, um, put under the paywall, things that are company specific and that I think provide actionable information for investors or regulators or lawyers or um, accounting researchers or people who are very interested in these issues. Um, if it's not company specific, if it's not, if it's more um, educational, if it's more observational, um, then that's free. And so again, making sure that people are getting something all the time and um, that people who are just signing up for free 
are getting something that they don't get anywhere else. But for those that are willing to pay, um, looking at how other newsletters, um, you know, approach that, um, you have to give people something that they're willing to pay for, something that they're not going to get anywhere else. And and I do I do promise nobody else writes about the stuff that I write about. Now that you've been writing a newsletter for a little bit, uh, how does it compare to blogging for you? Since I think for a lot of people right now, it, newsletters are sort of like a a newer or different form, even though they've been around for a while, but the way that people write newsletters now is different. And I think, yeah, there's a sort of parallel to blogging, but it's still different. Do you find that they're similar or different? Um, they're different. Um, one is that um, when I started blogging, um, mobile was not in there at all. Um, it didn't matter. You know, nobody read long blog posts on their phone. Um, I mean, it, it was not an issue in 2006, 2007, until probably 2011 or 12 that you started seeing this focus on mobile. Um, the other thing is, you know, when I first started blogging, it was enough to just have a whole bunch of text that was really interesting to someone. Um, you didn't have to mix it up with a lot of, you know, um, you know, video or uh, audio or whatever. I personally, on my blog, had a, had this thing because I like music and movies. Um, I would always try to find some fun um, piece of music or film scene that I thought was sort of snarky or punny, you know, on what it is that I was writing about. So just it was to entertain myself more than anybody else. Sometimes people probably didn't even get, you know, the joke, but it was for me. So I would put some photo or some uh, piece of music or some uh, snippet from a film up at the top. And that was me. So none of that was really mobile, um, you know, enabled. It was not oriented for that. Um, my blog was very, very, very dense. Okay. It, it's not a top to bottom chronological format. I specifically um, custom designed it to look like a magazine. So if you go there and you go to the front page, um, people mo usually come back to me and say when they go for the first time, oh my God, it's like overwhelming. There's like so much stuff. And that was the exact um, uh, effect I wanted. I wanted people to see Oh my God, she's like so smart. She has all this information. Ah, where do I start? You know, and to like dig in. So I had really, really long um, um, time on site metrics. I mean, people would, when they would come to my site, they would stay for hours because they just go from one thing to another. You can't do that with a newsletter. Your format in Substack does not lend itself to that. Um, I write way too long for the Substack format. I realize that now, I, I, but I just wrote a 4,000 word piece that went out this morning uh, anyway. Um, so it, you know, my pieces are hard to write on the phone, but then again, I read New Yorker articles on my phone. I read, you know, 5,000 word Atlantic uh, articles on my phone. There are nerds, you know, who do it anyway. Um, but, you know, putting in the newsletter, mixing it up with um, other links, video, you know, um, photos, charts, a lot of charts. So the, the, the people who are looking at information and looking at it in terms of their investments, they want share price, they want charts, they want comparisons. I learned that in five years at MarketWatch, writing for an investor-focused um, site in, you know, 
got me thinking about why does the investor care? That's always the question I ask. Why does the investor care? Um, that's, you know, my mind has now been trained to that. Um, I may not, I may resist it. I may push against it. Um, but I know it now. I know that that's something I have to keep in mind if I want um, a post to be successful. So newsletters should be shorter. It should be punchier. Um, it should have personality. But my writing has always had my personality infused in it. When you were at Market Watch, when I wrote for Market Watch, even though it was straight news, um, people said they always knew it was my piece. They could always see me behind the words. And that's my goal. I really love that. I think there's something to what you're saying of, you know, even even your style of self-described being very dense or something that like only nerds are really going to dig into for a long time. Like, I think that is in itself a style, which um, is really cool to hear. A really good example, somebody that I um, that I admire a lot is Matt Levine at Bloomberg. What he gets away with, you know, at a major media site in terms of writing a column that has, you know, 10,000 words and 19 topics. Um, and he's won the Loeb Award. I'm a, I'm a Loeb Award judge, which is the UCLA Business Journalism Award. He's won the Loeb Award for commentary. So he is sort of the, he, he, he does sort of the pièce de résistance of dense business journalism in a fun um, you know, interesting, uh, slightly snarky, but always on point way. And um, I sometimes say, does he not have an editor? You know, but in a way, you know, that's sometimes good because the person and their knowledge shines through. And those of us who are willing to take the consequences, we go, okay, fine, whatever. You know, if somebody doesn't like it, well, you know, all right, go read it. Yeah, and that way I think it's, it feels very newslettery to me in that it filters probably out for a lot of the general population, but the people that stick around are the people that fought through it and are like really there to stay, which is cool to hear. Um, did you ever consider monetizing your blog when you were writing it? Or uh, do you think of monetizing your newsletter as sort of like a picking up that thread where you left off? Did it never really occur to you to, to monetize before? Oh my gosh. Um, I went through that over and over and over again, because certainly people would ask me that question. You're, you're doing all this work, you know, why don't you monetize it? So how, how could you monetize a blog back in those days? You could get sponsors, you could get ads, you could get somehow, you know, um, I guess sponsors and ads really. Well, the problem was, is that I was writing um, something about the business of the big four public accounting firms. And as I said, you don't have too many people that can, that can talk about the things that I talk about in the way that I do, because very few people are free to openly express those opinions. And in the same way, very few are openly able to sponsor or pay uh, for a site that expresses those opinions. So. I, you know, sponsors were kind of hard to find. Anybody who was uh, also looking to stay on the right side of the accounting firm did not want to be uh, seen next to me. And I had uh, a couple of sponsors, uh, one software firm that sponsored me for a while. And then, you know, that stuff is fickle. I tried Google ads. I ended up with having the accounting firms advertising next to my articles, which was comical. Really, what I wanted to do is I wanted to write. I did not want to run a, a, a website. So the idea of cultivating sponsors, cultivating, you know, doing things like 
uh, having paid webcasts or things like this. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write. And so I ended up using the blog as a showcase for my writing and then eventually to get freelance writing and full-time writing jobs. It does seem like that's sort of the the way it, the only way you could really make money off your reputation before was that, right? It's like writing was, if you wrote for your side projects, that's sort of how you grew your reputation. And then some other firm takes notice of you and offers you a full-time job. And it sounds like, right? yeah. I mean, the, the original purpose of the blog was to attract an agent and get a book contract and write a book. I never wrote the book. I'm trying to write one now because I have more time and the freedom to do that. But that was the idea was to use the blog as a showcase for my writing to let people know who I was and what I knew. And what that led to was a journalism career and an opportunity to work full time at MarketWatch. Just to sort of wrap things up, um, you've been writing for a while, obviously, in a lot of different formats. How do you find and tap into new readers? Do you feel... Do you feel like you've sort of found your sources and you're kind of doubling down on them? Are there any surprising sources of readership that you've experienced? Well, I would say in the last four or five years, the um, the trading community, the community of people who are actively trading has just gone bonkers. And there are lots of little, you know, niches and forums and other sites. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't focus on that as much as I do um, making sure that I'm writing about companies that people are interested in that are actively traded and that, they know, that they're interested in, that they have active questions. And for that, um, I have to say that Twitter has been very, very good to me. Um, every journalism thing that I've ever done pretty much has come from um, having been um, uh, 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 on Twitter since 2008, uh, tweeting constantly, tweeting um, very, very, uh, you know, frankly, uh, giving my opinion, uh, answering anybody's questions and letting people know and developing sort of that reputation as someone who knows about um, uh, accounting and auditing and the the intersection with um, public companies and pre-IPO companies. So at this point, when something happens and it's an auditor, I'll start getting requests. You know, uh, you know, Francine, can you read the auditors? Can you, you know, there are people who probably have no idea what my real name is. And I see that when I meet them in person. Um, and, you know, but they'll ask me a question and I'll answer it. Why? In the interest of education, in the interest of peaking interest, in the interest now of getting them to read the newsletter. Well, thanks for joining and chatting with me. Where should people find you if they want to check out your work? You can find me at thedig.substack.com. Um, you can email me at thedig@substack.com, and you can always find me on Twitter at readtheauditors, R-E-T-H-E-A-U-D-I-T-O-R-S, readtheauditors. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs>